Father in heaven, you've already been blessing us, not only this morning, but throughout this weekend. And we've sensed again the shortness of time. And right now we're sensing, I'm sensing the shortness of time even this morning. And yet at the same time, we know that you have a message that you want to present. I pray you'd make that crystal clear to me what needs to be emphasized in the short time that we have and that that same spirit of urgency would be impressed on each of our hearts as we seek you day by day to know just what you would have us do. We thank you that we can trust you to guide now, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if I can imagine a worse situation. Maybe you've been there yourself, but something that you, you've really looked at is as a unifying theme, a unifying focus in your life. Maybe it was something that you were putting your energies into. Maybe it was something that gave you resolve and gave you focus. And now it seems like everything that really your life was centered around, at least to some extent, has been pulled out from under you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. We may not catch the magnitude of what's happening in this familiar chapter from the pages of the Old Testament, but Daniel 1 is a traumatic juncture in the history of God's people. Remember, the people of God had been physically led by him, by Jehovah, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud. They had been led out of bondage. They were slaves. None they are free in the promised land. God is leading them physically, showing his physical manifestation. And yet even in that context, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God was right there. He was physically present. There was no question about whether God was with them and yet the sanctuary was to be the focus, not only of God's physical presence with his people, but it was also a promise. It was a promise of who God was, and it was a promise of what God wanted to do. And part of that promise was a promise of a God who not only was all gracious and saving and redeeming, but a God who was all just. For the sanctuary reveals both the love, the mercy, and the justice of God. The sanctuary was really the focus of God's people. It was where God dwelt. It was where the Shekinah dwelt. And so here in Daniel 1, this is a traumatic story in the history of God's people. Because in Daniel 1, as the account opens in the very first verse, it tells us that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came unto Jerusalem and he besieged it. And amazingly, it says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. Do you catch what's happening here? Do you catch what the people of that day saw happening before their eyes? When another nation conquered a nation and they took their gods, their symbols of worship, and brought it into the house of their God, what did it indicate? It indicated that the conquered people's God was impotent. 
that their God was more powerful. And you remember some of those stories in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant brought into the house of Dagon by the Philistines. Same imagery here, only there's no drama that happens in Babylon. There's no toppling of Chaldean gods and goddesses. Have you heard it? The sanctuary truth. Adventists just misunderstood that. There's no truth about the sanctuary. There's really no heavenly sanctuary. Have you heard that? It's been in the ranks of Adventism for years, and it's still there. Have you heard other things like, well, you know, all this stuff that uh, our forefathers believe, I mean, they, they just didn't really understand things. We're, we're an enlightened people today. We're people of science. You know, we're not bound by those uh, literalistic readings of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Have you heard things like that? There have always been voices saying that God's truth is bankrupt. But in Daniel's day, in Daniel's day, to the mindset of the people of the Old Testament, the people of Judah, to Daniel's peers, what had played out in front of them was seeming to give credence to all the arguments that were raised by the opponents of God's people. And right in their own ranks. Where was God? Why wasn't he acting? How come I had lived my life with this focus and it wasn't coming true? Maybe some of you are there today. You've been living for something. You've had a focus. You thought it was God-ordained. Maybe it was an educational focus. And whether it's finances or health or family issues, maybe it seems like you're derailed from that focus. And people are telling you, well, that's not God's focus for you at all. You misunderstood God, and yet you knew he was calling you to something special. Others of you, it's some area of lifestyle. And again, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart in these meetings. He's been telling you he's got a higher calling for you. And yet you say, but I started going down that path before, and it just ended up in misery. I ended up with, you know, a group of kids that ended up leaving the church. Or, you know, I got real serious about my health, and I ended up getting sick. Are you with me here? There are times in life where it looks like the things that God has called us to. In fact, not only looks like what God called us to, God had called his people to build a sanctuary, hadn't he? God was physically present with there, and now it looks, as we read the first verse of the book of Daniel, that God's ways, God's principles, God's truth is laying in the dirt and in the dust. And it's in that context that some of the Hebrew nobility are brought to Babylon. Among them, we're told, in verse 6, is Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you know how the story plays out there in Daniel 1? The king begins a brainwashing program. Nebuchadnezzar, he was a wise king. I mean, he wouldn't just put foreign rulers into his conquered nations. He would train the youth from within the church, if you will, from within the conquered nation, and he'd have them go back into leadership positions. This is just ancient history, isn't it? Or was Nebuchadnezzar following a plan that Satan has to this day? Are there people to this day in the ranks of Christianity, who somehow think, whether they are forcibly, by circumstances, by family desires, by opportunity, 
How many of them think that maybe they will be better leaders in God's work by going to the schools of the Babylonians? Is that possible? Now, don't misunderstand the point I'm making here because Daniel was brought to the school of the Babylonians. But listen to what happens in the school. First of all, you get a new name. You get a new identity. You're in a new peer group. Are you with me? And in that peer group, you have a different identity. Daniel and his friends are given different names. But beyond that, they start working on you to change your lifestyle. It may seem subtle. It may seem like an opportunity. Maybe you're in the honors class, and uh, you're going to have some special privileges, and you get to go out to eat with the professor. and you're taken out to a certain restaurant, or maybe it's a certain entertainment that you have the privilege of being part of because you're part of some special group in this secular learning environment. Daniel is given the very finest preparation that the world can offer. And it includes not only intellectual education, but it is lifestyle education. In verse 8 of Daniel 1, it says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Defile. Where does that word come from? Defile. Do you know what the word defile means? You know what language defilement is speaking about? That's sanctuary language. Daniel's saying that it may look like around me. The world may be trying to tell me. The educational systems may be trying to tell me. My peers in the church may be trying to tell me that God's truth is no longer relevant. It may seem like the world is saying, look, you're getting certain advantages to just kind of compromise a little bit. I mean, we're not talking about a big thing. I mean, this isn't a salvation issue, is it? Daniel says, the sanctuary in Jerusalem may have been defiled. The Babylonians may have apparently marred God's representation of his revelation in this physical sanctuary in Jerusalem. But my God is alive. My God is judge. That's what Daniel's name means. God is judge. Jehovah is judge. And this righteous God is still on his throne, and my body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. And I am not going to allow anyone to defile the sanctuary. Daniel purposes in his heart against the stream, against the current, against the tide of influence that's swelling over the church that he and his three friends are not going to cave in. I want to tell you this morning, that's not only Daniel's work. But it's my work, and it's your work, isn't it? God has called us in these last days to do what?
Stand, you got it. <laughs> Things are sinking in. I knew you were a sharp group. Yes, God has called us to stand. And so Daniel and his friends say that they are going to stand for truth. They're going to stand. There's an interesting insight into this. I was sharing with some of you the other day an amazing chapter in the book Councils on Diet and Foods. It's the very first chapter there. It's called Reasons for Reform. And there's an interesting commentary on Daniel's experience in Daniel 1. I'm reading from page 30 of Councils on Diet and Foods. It says, here Daniel, speaking about the king's food being presented before him, here Daniel was brought to a severe test. Was this an easy thing for Daniel to deal with? No. I believe every one of us is dealing with severe tests. Whether you're in the midst of it right now or not, there are severe things that are going on in your life. They may not seem severe. I think there were lots of other Jewish young people who didn't think it was much of a severe test at all, who thought they were just being blessed. And look at all the good food they're getting to eat when those other slaves aren't getting anything good at all. Look at this great education we're getting. We're at Harvard. Or, I mean, here we're on the West Coast. Maybe it's Stanford or UCLA. I don't know where it is, but they're at the finest school. Daniel was dealing with a severe test. Should he adhere to the teachings of his fathers concerning meat and drinks and offend the king, possibly losing not only his position but his life? Or should he disregard the commandments of the Lord and retain the favor of the king, thus securing great intellectual advantages and most flattering worldly prospects? I mean, just think what Daniel could do for God if he just went along with the program. Just hang in there for a while. You know, God may be convicting you about things in these meetings, and you're saying, you know, what? I mean, look at it. I mean, this is... I mean, I've only got, you know, 10 more months and I'll be done with my education. You know, and then I'll serve the Lord. You know, right now, though, I mean, you know, I got a full scholarship at the secular school. I mean, I mean, yeah, there's some influences there that aren't that good. Are you with me? If God is calling you out of something, come out of her, my people. Daniel, it says is facing this difficult decision. But she tells us Daniel did not hesitate. He decided to stand firmly for his integrity. Let the result be what it might. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. If you think this is not a story of contemporary relevance, listen to the words immediately following. As the pen of inspiration traces out what goes through many people's minds today when they read this story. There are many among professed Christians today who would decide that Daniel was too particular and would pronounce him narrow and bigoted. Have you been there? Have you ever been accused of being narrow and bigoted? You got a closed mind. Come on, you got to be open-minded. We're living in 2010. 
We're not living back in the 1950s. 2010, have you got it? You're narrow. You're bigoted. Many Christians today would label Daniel that way. They consider the matter of eating and drinking of too little consequence to require such a decided stand, one involving the probable sacrifice of every earthly advantage. The first test, lifestyle test that I had, having been raised a non-Seventh-day Adventist and attending a secular college, was not over diet. But I can remember when the Lord was speaking to my heart about having a special day of worship, the Sabbath, the seventh day. And I was not at a good college for Sabbath keeping because we had classes three days a week. There's what they called the A classes that met Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and the B classes that met Tuesday, Thursday, and you got it, Saturday. And so I was taking a number of those B-tracked classes, and uh, I had grown up in an environment where my whole future was contingent on my college education. And I can remember sitting at my desk in the dorm room, sensing that God was calling me to make a stand for the Sabbath and start skipping my classes on Saturday. Some of you are good in math. What if you miss one class out of three? What percentage would that be of your classes you'd be missing? 33.3%. You got it. That's a lot of classes. And there were tests that were offered on Sabbath. And there were other things that were due on Sabbath in those classes. And so I can remember sitting there thinking, I mean, this is crazy. I'm throwing away my whole future to keep a day? I mean, it seemed to my human perception that this was a very narrow way to look at life. It seemed like this was a very strange way to look at life. But there was a problem. And it was God was convicting my heart about an area of lifestyle. And by God's grace, he helped me to set aside that day. And I'll tell you, it was very difficult many times. But uh, the Lord blessed. And it was such a blessing to have one day a week. Now, I didn't really probably understand that much about the devotional life in those early days of my Christian experience, but one day that was set apart for God. I hate to tell you what I did most of that day because of the uh, very bad lifestyle I was on. I ended up sleeping most of the day. I would study up till midnight on Friday night. No, I didn't know the Sabbath started at sundown. And I'd go to bed and I'd sleep until about three in the afternoon because I was only sleeping an hour or two a night during the week. I was really bad. So if I come down with some neurodegenerative disease, um, you know, that's some of the risk factors I have in my early life history. It had nothing to do with my present diet, okay, or lifestyle. <laughs> And so, one day, a non-Adventist, there were no Adventists in that school, actually, came into my room and he said, what kind of a Sabbath is this? Because I had told him about it. He said, all you do is mope around all day. You just lay in bed. We were having, they were having these uh, Bible study meetings that I'd go to at 3 in the afternoon on Saturday. 
Okay, so I didn't see the big picture. But God was speaking to my heart. And I could tell you story after story. Many of you could, right? Of how God has convicted you about some area of lifestyle that may at the time have seemed to have been foolish to follow. But God's Spirit was speaking to your heart. And when you yield to God's Spirit, are you ever disappointed? No. So did it ruin my prospect for any kind of education to start keeping the Sabbath? Well, some of you say, might say, we know about what your aspirations were as a child, Dr. DeRose, and you ended up settling for medicine. I aspired as a young boy growing up in Chicago to be a garbage collector. Really? So some of you say that would be a lot better calling. You're serving more people than if you were a doctor. But no matter how we value things in life, I'll tell you from my perspective today, okay? From my perspective today, my following God in any area of my life has never compromised what God wanted to do in my experience. How could it? I mean, can you think about that, how crazy that is? That we think somehow if we follow God, it's going to compromise what his plans are for us? That we can't follow him just yet. If I start following him now, it's going to ruin the prospects for the great work I can do for God in the future. Really, it's crazy. Daniel's work was not only standing for what was right, but you know what Daniel was? Daniel was a priest. No. Daniel was not serving in the earthly sanctuary, but Daniel was fulfilling all of those elements that we've been looking at in our studies together. Remember when we were first together, we looked at Elijah, and we saw that Elijah had this unique priestly calling. Remember? He had a priestly calling. It included preaching and teaching, and what else? Healing. We looked at Jesus' ministry, and Jesus' ministry was a threefold work. It included preaching, teaching, and healing. We looked at every commissioning service that Jesus had, at least we referred to it. In every commissioning service, when Jesus sent out the 12, and when he sent out the 70, and when he gave the Great Commission, he gave in every one of those calls a call for his followers to do what? to preach, and to teach, and to heal. And then, when the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to the New Testament church, three critical dimensions of that priestly ministry are given. Teaching, preaching, and healing. And for those of you that weren't here, don't fall into the trap of thinking that spiritual gifts, even though the Holy Spirit distributes to each man separately or severally as he will, that many of us are not given dimensions of most, if not all, of those gifts. Remember, in 1 Corinthians 12, it speaks about the gift of what? Faith. How many Christians are not supposed to have faith? Come on, right? We're all supposed to have faith. We're all given a measure of faith. And God wants us to exercise that. He wants that faith to grow. What about healing? Are all of us called to be involved in some form of health ministry? If you haven't seen it, it's there. 
It's in the Bible, and it's in Daniel's life as well. Daniel, this end-time representative of God's people. The book of Daniel, sealed to the time of the end. The prophetic message is not to be understood until the last days. Those historical events in the life of Daniel, present truth for an end-time people, showing us the kind of character that we need. Daniel was a priest in Daniel 9. Go with me there. Daniel 9. Daniel 9, we think of priests doing certain things. Daniel as priest in Daniel 9 is interceding for his people. Daniel 9, verse 3. Daniel knows that the time prophecy of Jeremiah is coming to a close. He knows, it seems to him, that the time has already come. And he's wondering why the fulfillment of the 70-year captivity promise that it will be, Jerusalem will be restored, God's people will be freed. He's wondering why that is not occurring. And he says in verse 3, he sets his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And he prays, and Daniel in this great prayer in Daniel 9 confesses not only for his people, but he confesses his own sin. Daniel as priest is interceding on behalf of his people. Daniel in his life, if you study it, combines not only the priestly intercession work that we see here in Daniel 9, he also was what? Faithfully preaching God's messages. He was teaching people individually, like Nebuchadnezzar himself in Daniel 2. And was he involved in health ministry? Was Daniel involved in a healing ministry? Right there in Daniel 1, the most powerful healing ministry, the foundation for health ministry that every one of you is called to is your own lifestyle. Your own lifestyle. To be faithful to God's call in every area of your life. Do you remember my reading from Third Testimonies 61 and 62 yesterday? Some of you weren't here. But I'll remind you that as we looked at those pages... The curtain was pulled back, and we were told that it was not only a cause of physical degeneracy, our failure, that is, our failure to follow God's counsel when it comes to lifestyle, our neglect of health reform, but it was one of the greatest causes of moral degeneracy. Often I'm asked, we're reading Daniel, often people say, Dr. DeRose, are you trying to tell me that no one who's not a vegetarian. Someone asked me this yesterday. Will not be saved? If I'm not a vegetarian, will I not be saved? Am I saying that? Is God saying it? Of course not. God's not saying that. But God is trying to bless you with an expanding path of truth. And if God is convicting you that you should be a vegetarian, or convicting you that you need to get on a daily exercise program, or convicting you that you need to get to bed early. Maybe it's going to be 9 o'clock at night. I don't know what he's convicting you of. I'm not here to tell you what God is convicting you of because I'm not God. But if God is convicting you of something, then I can tell you there is great danger in stifling the voice of the Holy Spirit. Okay? And these things that we want to say are not salvation issues. If we're talking about a relationship with Jesus, 
You who struggle over what God's great plan is for your life. Can I tell you something from my own experience? Many of the great struggles over big picture issues are simplified or eliminated by the little things God is asking you to do right now. You see? You're saying, well, Lord, I don't know where I'm going in life. That's why I'm not addressing all these things. Please show me a big picture. What do you want me to do? I mean, who am I supposed to marry? Where am I supposed to go in life? And the Lord's convicting you of little things. You see? And if you're faithful in following those little things, often those big decisions become very simple. Because you followed the light in that little area, there's no big struggle. You say, well, I can't do that. Because, you know, God showed me I'm supposed to live my life this way. How can I go and do that? And you get all these options. The doors just start closing, and it becomes very clear. And sometimes it gets so clear, it's scary. As God was leading me as a medical student, it became very clear from a number of things how God was leading me. He was, he was leading me very clear in my mind that he wanted me to continue my medical training in residency at an Adventist institution. I'm not saying that everyone has to do that. God was convicting me of that. He was convicting me that he wanted me to go into internal medicine. There were times where I really struggled with that. That's what the Lord wanted me to do. And uh, he, he also convicted me he didn't want me to stay at Loma Linda. And uh, back in, the, uh, in 84 when I graduated, there was only one Adventist internal medicine residency outside of Loma Linda. It was at Kettering. It wasn't a real hard decision where he wanted me to go. But, you know, my friend said, well, you know, you can't just apply to one program. If you just apply to one program, if they don't accept you, what will you do? Well, it wasn't an issue. Because I knew, I mean, the Lord just made it clear. I mean, if, if it, I had to wait another year or be a student missionary or something, that was okay. Well, as it happened, the Lord wanted me at Kettering, and I was there, you know, within a month or two of my graduation from Loma Linda. But it was because of little things, and I won't tell you all the, the little things, what they were. One of them, actually, since we talked about it yesterday, was I didn't believe the Lord wanted me getting more training in female medicine. So I saw him leading me into primary care, and I didn't see that family practice was the, the place where he was calling me. Now, by the way, I know there's many good male family practitioners who the Lord didn't convict of that. And just for the record, since we've talked about relationships here, uh, the Lord did mess up my social relations, too, because of this kind of counsel. He actually had the nerve, while I was at Kettering, and I say this, right? I, I, I mean, I'm saying it reverently. I, I'm saying it in the sense that most people would label God's counsel. And it's, it's tragic that they do. But God convicted me from counsel in the spirit of prophecy about male and female physicians that he wanted me to marry a physician. Do you know that in medical ministry, it speaks about the blessing of husbands and wives who are both physicians? The problem was... There were no single Adventist female physicians at Kettering. You know, and I knew the way God leads people together, you've got to be in the same place if he's going to lead you together. <laughs> but um, since I'm running out of time, we probably won't tell you all the details of that story, but, oh, I can see you're disappointed, huh? <laughs> okay, okay. I don't see anyone waving signs that I'm supposed to cut. Even Arden is, oh, he's giving me five minutes. Okay. Well, um, I'll tell you what actually happened. I was uh, in a Bible study group there at Kettering. It was actually uh, 
kind of interested in a young lady. I told you kind of about this yesterday in the question and answers indirectly. I told you how if you're interested in someone and the Lord tells you that that's an inappropriate place to put your affections, he can just rapidly take away that affection if you exercise it and exercise your mind in that direction. So I was interested in this, uh, becoming interested in this young lady who was in a Bible study group that I was in, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, and she was not a physician, though. And so I was praying about it, and the Lord just kept convicting me, you need to marry a physician. Now, b- believe me, this is not general counsel. I don't believe general counsel for every Adventist physician. There are many physicians here who are not married to physicians. By no means am I suggesting to you you should abandon your wife or your husband and find someone else, okay? This is just the Lord's convicting me. And I'm giving you these illustrations because God typically convicts you in ways that are not always normative for anyone else. You see? But if you have a devotional life and you're walking with Jesus, he's going to put burdens on your heart. And you need to, don't look around what everyone else is doing. Say, well, it can't be right. God can't want every physician to marry another physician. That, That wasn't in my mind. God was convicting me. So I said, okay, Lord, you don't want me to have any interest in this young lady. She's not a physician. And you know, within a short time, I had no interest in her. Because I, but I still didn't know what he was doing. So the Lord sent me out to um, Loma Linda. Kettering was wanting me to recruit for their, uh, their residency. And uh, I ran into uh, Sonia. She's now my wife. Some of you are starting to figure out where this is going. And uh, was just impressed that she was seeking to follow the Lord. She's a medical student at that time and uh, interested in primary care. And I said, you know, this would be someone who'd be a good spouse for someone who had this kind of vision. But uh, this is not, God doesn't work, you know, 2,000 miles apart. And uh, to make a, a long story short, I ended up actually getting better acquainted with Sonia's family than her. Because the Lord sent me to a place after all this training, internal medicine residency, he sent me, I have one minute to make this very succinct and then make an appeal. Um, He sent me to Wildwood, Georgia. And some people roll their eyes when they hear Wildwood, Georgia. You know the kind of people that have gone through Wildwood, Georgia. You know what they turn out. You know, the Clifford Goldsteins and Mark Finleys and all. But, you know, I I ended up there. And and I was right near where Sonia's family lived. And so I got well acquainted with her family. And the Lord ultimately got us better acquainted. made it clear that we were to be a team. But I could give you many examples like that, but we need to close actually on that note. And we want to close because this is my last meeting with you. I have to get back to see patients tomorrow at Weimar. We've got the capable uh, Dr. Orlich who'll be sharing with you all the things that I neglected to share. So make sure you know what you were disappointed about that you didn't hear about in the health meetings. And Dr. Orlich will either cover that or say Dr. DeRose is responsible to cover that the next time you see him. But uh, I would invite you as uh, whatever is comfortable for you in some position of reverence, whether it's bowing your head, whether you want to stand, um, whether you want to kneel, however, it's more comfortable for me to kneel up here. But we're just going to seek the Lord in prayer because uh, this type of message does require a opportunity for us to make decisions for Jesus. So let's bow our heads together.
Father in heaven, you reminded us today that you are an ever-present Savior. The sanctuary reminds us of Jesus, the great sacrifice that he paid for each one of us, the great value he places on each of us. And we're reminded by the Apostle Paul, when we look at that great sacrifice, how will God withhold anything from us? You won't. And the book of Daniel reminds us that the task that we have conceptually is very simple, that you just want us to follow you. You just want us to stand for you. You just want us to be faithful. You just want us to follow you in the little things. And when we follow in the little things, these little lifestyle things that many people say are of no consequence, they say, well, you, get, you, know, you get all fanatical to do that. No, no, no. If we're following Jesus, Jesus is always balanced. He'll never lead us in a way we know that we would ever regret. And so, Father, I thank you in my own life as I look back, even though I don't understand everything, the things that I can't understand, I see how gracious you were in telling me things that I didn't want to hear. Father, there are many here this morning. Some of them, you are wanting to make a dramatic change in their life. Some, you're wanting to confirm them right where they're at. They're, they're wavering. They've been following you, but there are all kinds of pressures saying, you know, no, you're in too long a program. You're taking too much time. You're not doing enough for Jesus. You need to be out there on the front lines. And yet you call them the training. And if there are some there wavering in that position and they're in the right place, Father, I just pray that you would reaffirm that in their hearts. Father, there's others here that you've been speaking to this weekend. And I pray that if there are some here right now that are in the valley of decision, we want to just pause for a minute. Father, if they are struggling to say, yes, Father, I will not defile myself. I will follow all of your counsel, what you're calling me to do, more devotional time or taking time for my physical health better or focusing on some issues with relationships or my own character that I haven't been focusing on or whether it's something specific about the devotional life that you're leading them in. Father, I pray right now that as decisions are being made, as people, right now, that you would seal those decisions. And I want to just right now ask you, as an audience, as we're before God's throne, before the heavenly sanctuary, if you want to send a signal up to heaven, as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, if you want to send a signal to heaven that you want the special power of the Holy Spirit in your life to follow the convictions that God has again placed on your heart, just please raise your hand. Just show a signal to heaven that you want his special power. God sees those hands he sees those commitments, and he is committed to give you the power to follow through and to bless you as a result. We thank him in Jesus' name. Amen.